Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Empty supermarket shelves, threats of food shortages and the culling of healthy pigs that should have been used for meat production. And the likelihood of more shortages to come as we enter winter just serve to highlight the fragility of our supply chain around food. As we continue in our series of discussions on climate change on your doorstep, we couldn't ignore food, its production, distribution, consumption and the impact that it has on our planet. To help me explore these issues, I'm delighted to welcome my guest today. Professor Sir Charles Godfrey is Director of the Oxford Martin School and Professor of Population Biology at the University of Oxford. Charles is a population biologist with broad interest in science and the interplay of science and policy with particular interest in food security. Charles, hello and welcome to Planet Pod. Pleasure to be here. My second guest, Matt Reynolds, is the science editor at Wired UK where he edits and commissions stories about the environment, health, space, and everything else about how science is changing the world. Matt's first book, How to Feed the Planet Without Destroying It, was published in September this year. Welcome, Matt, to Planet Pod. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Um, Obviously, in a company of two such esteemed experts with lots to say, um, we're going to really struggle to get everything into our usual pod of 40 minutes, but we'll do our best. But I wonder if I could start with you, Charles, but just perhaps giving us some context and explaining What do we mean when we talk about food security? Uh, What we mean is that people have access to food and that that food is affordable, which is critically important, and also that it is nutritious, that it provides their nutritional needs. So so it's it's is it the system of food production as well as you know, I mean, is is that when if if we were to say what how does that relate to me in a day to day life? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, well, I gave you the sort of the definition of food security, but how you achieve food security really relies on the whole uh, on the whole system, how we uh, produce food, um, diets as well, and also the governance of food, how we ship food around the world, because there are many countries that uh, cannot produce all the food that they require to feed their own population. For example, uh, think Egypt, which the best will in the world can't feed a population of 100 million and climbing from the strip of land along the Nile and a few oases. So you're exactly right. Uh, what, how you achieve food security involves every single component of the food system. So I guess I'm right in thinking that is not only very complex and interdependent, but essentially quite liable to disruption, as we've seen here in, in just recently in very kind of parochial terms, but here in the UK with, with, with some of the food supply issues we've been experiencing. Yeah, I guess I think it's both complex and very simple. So it's complex because there are a huge number of working parts. It's simple that if you look ahead at the challenges that we face, then um, we have to have action on all fronts. So we have to think how we produce more food sustainably. We have to have serious conversations about uh, diet change, which can be politically very fraught. We have to bear down on food waste. And we have to think about the governance of the of the global uh, food system. So in a sense, we don't have the luxury of just saying all the heavy lifting can be done by diet change or by agriculture or by international treaties. And I think it's also important to note that when we're talking about issues of food security, the people that 
who are most vulnerable to disruptions in the, the food supply chain are always the people that are already most vulnerable in society. So, you know, you saw this through COVID-19, um, you know, meatpacking plants already really low paid, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a nasty job, right? They were hit by really, really bad um, outbreaks and also the disruption more generally. We saw this in the UK with the possible disruption to school dinners in Latin America. Tens of millions of children didn't get the food they needed through school because of the disruption to the supply chain in, yeah, in the food system. And I think it's always worth remembering that quite often the people that work in our food system are some of the most vulnerable in society. And, and that's really true when you're talking about the developing world and that these are the people that are most affected when we have these disruptions that we're talking about. I completely agree with Matt, and I think an interesting uh, question is where you draw the boundaries of the food system. So uh, if you look at some of the people Matt were talking about, really poor paid within the food system, and then the lowest income classes, which have problems of um, buying food, is the solution to that within the food system, or is it broader issues about the way we run uh, our economies? And they are essentially political decisions. So that have to be made, but they do make a great effect on decisions that are or are not made within the food system. And that's, I guess, the cent- part of the essential problem, isn't it? Is it, it, None of these decisions are neutral if they're wrapped up in politics, um, both local and national geopolitics, you know, global politics. They are enormously complex to, to unpack. So, so I completely, you know, as you said, Charles, it's both simple and it's complex, but the complex bit is probably around some of the political negotiations. And am I right in thinking that we actually overproduce food globally, though? We have sufficient food to, to feed the planet. We just don't distribute it properly or so much of it gets wasted that it doesn't reach the people who need it. So I think the statistics are that we can produce enough food to feed the world if we wanted to. Um, I'm not sure that's a very helpful way of thinking about it, though. Uh, And I think that taking an economic lens is helpful um, because if uh, people who are currently not food secure at the moment, who are food insecure, if they were able to afford food, then by Economics 101, then they will increase demand and the supply will come. So I, I think just sort of thinking about the global capacity to produce food it's well. It's much better to think about to uh, think about food within the dynamics of uh, 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 of the global economic system as well. Yeah, and to add to that, I think that when we're talking about because this touches on the issue of, of, of food waste, right? Because a lot of this food is wasted; it's, it's not going to where it needs to go. You almost have two different problems where, in a lot of the developing world, that that food loss happens early on in the food that you know the. The food chain, so it happens when farmers are transporting food to the market and tomatoes get crushed and you lose maybe a third of the crop or something like that. In places like the UK, almost all that food waste happens uh, at restaurants, in the home, in the supermarket, at the other end of things. So for some people, food loss, well, it's in a country like the UK, food waste is a, a really bad issue from a climate perspective because we're wasting high carbon food a lot of the time. If you're throwing away a steak or something, that's it's a very carbon intensive food that we've produced, but it's slightly less of a food security issue. If you're talking about somewhere like you know Bangladesh, where 
you know, or sub-Saharan Africa, where lots and lots of crops are lost to, you know, bug infestations and, and poor storage, essentially, then that's a real security issue. And it's an economic issue because the farmers can't raise the right price when it goes to market. So they have all kinds of problem in terms of securing their income across the year. So I think it's really useful when we're talking about food waste and where we could feed the world if everything was in the right place, that we're talking about who exactly suffers at each part of that process, because it's quite, it's quite different depending on where you're looking. Interesting complexities with food waste as well. Clearly, you should bear down on food waste when, when you can. But if you take um, food chains in the uh, in the tropics, then one way to reduce food waste would be to bring in cold storage, uh, and that would then have its own greenhouse gas emission issues. So uh, one needs to, again, think in the broader system here and absolutely bear down on food waste, but do it in an intelligent way. Mm. Should we just unpack food waste a bit? Because it, it, it's an issue I know people feel very strongly about. And, um, you know, in the here in, you know, in the UK and in, in you know, kind of Western Europe, that food waste is really quite horrific, isn't it, Matt, in terms of how just how wasteful we are um, in, you know, both of, of, of raw ingredients and, and also of processed foods. What, what are some of the kind of, you know, just to give listeners a context, what are some of the stats around how much food we're wasting generally? Or is it not? Is it difficult to, to, to answer a question like that? I, I think the big statistics that always get uh, rolled out when we're talking about food waste globally is that if you took all the emissions that were related to food that becomes wasted, uh, if that was a country, that would be about uh, it would be behind only the USA and China in terms of overall emissions. It, it's something like the amount of freshwater withdrawals that go into wasted food is equivalent to Lake Geneva. So it's always nice to kind of put it in, in big terms. So I do think it is a really, really big issue. I think something like globally about 30% of all uh, food produced is wasted. And I also think that it's one of the points in the food system that especially in the um, developed world that people really, really interact with. I think one of the things we forget is that there's a, a very strong correlation with the uh, GDP of a country and the amount of that country that works in agriculture. So some parts of the world, you know, 80% of people are involved in the agriculture system. In something like, in a place like the UK, I think it's less than 1%. And so the food that you waste in your home is a really, really important touch point for how you interact with the food system and how that interacts with the environment. So I think partly that's why so much focus in the UK kind of goes on food waste, because it is a big area where if people change their behaviour, they could change their individual impact. But I also think it's one of the few spaces in which people in the developed world are really thinking about their climate impact when it comes to food, because you know, in a lot of ways, and I'd be interested, Charles, if you, you agree, but I feel that we're reasonably detached from how food is produced and you know the mechanics of going into it and the emissions you know that go into it and i think that that's why you know it becomes such an interesting issue for people you know, in the developed world yeah uh, just following up from that um like matt i, I use the statistic 30% as as a sort of ballpark estimate of the food that is wasted and i'm reasonably confident that's about right in the developed world actually the evidence base uh, for the developing world is much poorer. And actually, there's a relatively small number of studies, which we all quote. It could be less, it might be more. So we do need more data there. Um, yeah, I agree with Matt that, that we have in the developed world often become very uh, detached from both the way our food is produced and we sort of lose agency in how we can affect the food system and doing something about um, 
food waste uh, is something that we can do. I think one has to be realistic about um, the the degree to which changes in individual behavior, great as they are, can actually scale up um, because many people are not motivated or, to be honest, just don't have the cognitive bandwidth to make these decisions about, uh, about food waste, especially if you're stressed in other parts of your, of your life. Um, another way of looking at it is to say that food is very cheap at the moment. So I think in the UK, we spend 8% of our income on food, round about that. I think at no time in history have uh, society spent as little on food as a fraction of income as we do in the uh, Western rich world. So one of the reasons there's so much food waste is that it's a, I'm not saying a correct, but a logical decision, the way we allocate our time. And then you could argue if you're an economist here, an economist would say, again, economics basis would say, well, make food more expensive. And although I have some sympathy with that, I then worry that that would then be extremely regressive and it's okay for those of us on decent uh, incomes to be able to spend more on food, but the bottom income um, deciles in the, in, in the community would really uh, suffer. And then this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is, is that a problem that should be solved outside the food system or should it be solved within the food system? It's such a tricky dynamic to consider, isn't it? Because I think, you know, I've heard the statistic about, you know, the, 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 the relative price of food and, it, you know, absolutely logically let's just make food more expensive which would mean that we would waste less but also perhaps we would reward people within the food production system more fairly because we'd be able to you know drive and then there is a move now isn't there to say you know we've got to pay everybody more and presumably that will then work its way through to the to the end consumer in particularly in agriculture and butchery and in food production but 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 if if we look at our communities even with cheap food, there are still a huge percentage of our UK population who are going hungry or failing to make ends meet in terms of their own food security and a reliance on food banks and community larders and community fridges and all of those things. So, so this is a really difficult circle to square, isn't it? And, and I don't know. I wonder if we made food that much more expensive, would that really reduce individual waste enough for it to be beneficial in this dynamic i mean i think it's about changing our relationship with food isn't it matt isn't that what we're trying to do trying to get people to think differently about food and how we produce food and perhaps produce food differently rather than say let's you know make it expensive so people are less likely to waste it yeah i think so i think food waste and awareness of food waste is a is a really big part of the equation in terms of the levers that an individual can pull like Charles said actually there's only so much an individual can do in terms of their behavioral changes so I think that it's it's somewhat limited so I think it is slightly more about changing our relationship with food it's about you know knowing where your food comes from it's about making informed choices about uh, you know what should I buy or you know how should I plan my meals for the week but I think we also need to equip people to make informed decisions about this so something you come up across again and again is well let's eat local and uh, support local farmers and you know maybe I'm maybe like a little bit of a skeptic about the eat local movement because if you're saying well let's eat local beef 
fine. That's good from a supporting farmers in your community perspective, but it's going to be a lot worse than eating, you know, chicken, even local chicken or chicken farmed somewhere else, or definitely a lot worse than switching to a plant-based protein alternative. So I think that when people are making choices about sustainability, and also when governments are making choices about sustainability and the food system that that we want to move to, we have to be really clear about what problem are we trying to solve in each of these things? Because the reality is, is, is there a sustainable way to eat beef? Maybe, maybe not. It's more or less sustainable than other choices. And I think that sometimes we reach to really, really simple solutions, which is let's buy local, let's, you know, whatever, switch beef to chicken or let's waste a little, you know, let's waste less food. And then actually we're not quite we're reaching for the decisions that are easy rather than the decisions that the data leads us to. And sometimes I worry about that. I think we really focus a little bit on the wrong areas within this you know, food system. So what should we be thinking about? <laughs> well, well, I would say, are you, are you asking from like an individual's perspective what no, I can I do think, as an individual? I think more, more, more globally for systems, because, because I find it, the, the thing I find slightly frustrating about the current debate that we're having continually around sustainability and our responsibility is that, that we're being asked as individuals to do more and more, which is quite right, because we should do that. We have individual agency over our lives and we should take those actions. But we can't put all of the responsibility and all of the blame onto an individual. These are, these are, this is, you know, we need to look at the bigger systems, don't we? We need to look at policies and practices and politics and money and, and you know, investment and all of those things and so I can only have so much impact as an individual you know I can change my diet um, and I have the luxury to be able to possibly shop in my local farmer's market Um, but actually we're talking about much bigger issues than just my individual diet aren't we so so if we're looking about sustainable food production it isn't just about buying a sustainably slow-grown beef which will be three times the the price of ordinary beef um, if you're choosing to still eat meat there are other issues we should be talking about aren't there about sustainable food production and tackling this this, you know, this is from a global perspective. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, some of these problems are unbelievably basic. If you look at something like the you know, crop yield, which is essentially take an acre of land, how much crop am I producing each year in, in kilos or in, in bushels or whatever? If you look at the crop yield in places like sub-Saharan Africa, it is a fraction of what it is at, you know, in places like Southeast Asia, but also in places, you know, Europe is much, much higher. And I think we really perhaps don't contend with how fundamental the difference in crop production is at different parts of the world and how particularly sub-Saharan Africa has been, you know, left behind. I think, actually, Charles, you'll definitely have more figures to hand on this, but I think one of the most shocking things that people might not realise that, you know, a, a field of wheat in America might be four times more efficient, might be five times more efficient, because lots of farmers in you know, sub-Saharan Africa do not have access to um, irrigation, they don't have access to fertiliser, they don't have access to, you know, mechanised agriculture, they don't have the farm equipment. So if we're looking at this problem of food security, the figures vary a bit, but maybe 820 million people, um, you know, kind of go go hungry in the world, many more than that uh, don't have the nutrition that they need. Well, we've got this really, really big problem that we've got lots of land that's already being used for farming and it's nowhere near as productive as parts of the world are. And I think that's probably, yeah, we talk a lot about the carbon impact of food, but also we're perhaps not already using some of the land that's already converted for farming to get what we can out of it. Lots of uh, really interesting points there. uh, Let me follow up on two of them. The first going back to the issue about 
the degree to which the consumer can make a difference. And I think the consumer can make a difference, but we just need to be realistic um, about the degree to which that will scale. So I think we really do have to have action by, in particular by our governments, both directly and also in crafting the market within which the private sector can work. But going back to the consumers, I, I think there is a role that we have, which is in some ways to legitimize our politicians to make some of these hard decisions. Now, I, I don't normally quote Jean-Claude Juncker, but he once said, and I think it was him who originally said it, often we know what to do. We don't know how to get elected once we've done it. And uh, politicians, we see it in this country, are terrified of being accused of nanny statism and things like that. And related to that is the issues around social norms. So um, if we go out to a, uh, a buffet or something like that, we expect to see lots of food. If we go to certain, if we go and have lunch, then we expect there to be enough sandwiches and we choose and things like that. So some of the social norms, the way we, we, we expect to interact with uh, when we're out in society, do lead to things such as food waste. And changing them is difficult. And I think it's something that individuals, all of us can do, just increasing food um, uh, food awareness. Uh, writing books like Matt is another good way of doing it and just contributing to the public debate. Uh, Amanda, if I might then jump to the other really interesting point that uh, Matt was making about agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa and places like this. And Matt, as you say, the, um, the productivity there is terrible. And it's like the productivity that we had in Western Europe at the um, end of the uh, 18th century. And it's worthwhile to think what we did then. Well, what we did then was we took a lot of people off the land. So we increased the what economists call the total factor productivity of the land. And we did that because uh, the Industrial Revolution was happening. And so the Industrial Revolution was sucking up labor. It was at an era of colonial expansion. So there were new lands that uh, people could go to. Now, in Sub-Saharan Africa, we have the problem at the moment is that there is a vast number of people who are uh, getting their livelihoods at least in part from the land. And that is a sort of dead weight on how it can be, um, on how productivity can increase and productivity does need to increase. Now, one solution to that is to throw people off the land, but that is unconscionable and unethical. And so it's one of the great challenges in development science at the moment, to which there's not an answer, but I'm encouraged that there's a sort of foment of interesting ideas out there. So how do we do this? Do we try and invest in cities and in smaller towns and provide the economic impetus that sort of pulls people out of the land that leads to it becoming more worthwhile to invest in mechanization and invest in inputs? We don't have the answer for that. Um, there are, if you're being depressing about it, then there are real issues about the institutional capacity in some countries for this to happen. And um, also the just the growth of population, uh, even at a decelerating rate, just the challenges of finding um, worthwhile employment for that number of people. 
This episode of Planet Pod is supported by global law firm Evershed Sutherland. Presumably, there's a climate change challenge there as well, because that land is increasingly subject to extreme weather events, higher rate of, of droughts, higher rate of extreme temperatures. So, so the fragility of the land to produce the crops that are needed anyway is even is, is even more under threat than it was. And of course, we know from uh, our modelling that it is highly likely that some of the communities that are going to suffer most from climate change are those that are least able to to adapt. You know, I think one of the ways that you know people might help those areas, you know, respond to climate change is investing more in climate resilient crops. You know, a lot of uh, you know research and funding goes into. You know, commodity crops, crops like soy or maize are very, very widely grown crops. But um, there are certain crops that are you know, indigenous to sub-Saharan Africa that are probably much more suited, um, you know, much more resilient in climate change. So it's about perhaps looking more at funding. So how can we uh, grow things like cowpea more sustainably? And I think there are, there are encouraging products that are looking at, OK, well, this type of crop is probably going to be more resilient for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So how can we make sure we increase yields of this? And how can we make sure we you know, increase the rate of storage of this? I think it's um, you, are, you also want to be, you know, choose like locally appropriate crops and, and how to make sure that that food system really works for that area as well. Two brief responses to, to Matt. Completely agreed that we're there. And there does need to be more research. But I am encouraged by the attention the so-called orphan crops are getting at the moment. Uh, within the UK, we have great groups, for example, at Aberystwyth, who are looking at some of the crops that are only grown in the Sahel. The Gates Foundation have put a lot of uh, money into sorghum and uh, millet and, uh, and cassava and things. So uh, I, I think we are going in, 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 uh, in the right direction on that. There are some trade-offs. There are some things we could do that require uh, modern biotech. Including, uh, including GM techniques, it will be for countries to decide whether those are techniques that, that they will accept or not. But I, I am quite encouraged by the attention that this is getting at the moment. G- GM is a, is a tricky one, isn't it? Because it, it, I think it brings, you know, make, makes environmentalists anxious, um, but it definitely has the role to play in, in making those crops, you know, more fit for purpose for the for the. Um, conditions in which they might be grown Um, but isn't the part of the problem with GM is that you cannot harvest seed and therefore you can't have sustainability with your crop yields is that right or have I got that completely wrong if I am I out of date with my science Uh, a couple of issues there Uh, the first thing I'd say about GM is that we've been talking about some of the big sort of mega trends in food and GM is significant but it is a second order issue within the food system so you can have a really discussion about what we can do about the food system. And, you know, GM is the sort of second thing that you talk about down, uh, down the way. Now, um, my personal view is that GM should be part of the mix and can contribute towards more su- sustainable and productive uh, uh, agriculture. Uh, I respect people who don't hold that view. Um, but I think if you don't hold that view, then you have to be aware that other parts of the food system will have to take more of the uh, more of the strain. So I, I, I think you have to be realistic about that. Um, you mentioned the issue around harvesting grain and things like that. Uh, and that's not so much an issue of the technology as the application of the technology. 
So you can use GM to produce proprietary seeds that can't that can't then be harvested by the local farmer. And that's how some companies make, make their money. But you could equally well have a GM seed that could then be given to smallholders. So that's that, that's a decision out with the GM world um, uh, on that. Yeah, and I also think there are certain, as Charles said, I think that yeah, employing GM and, and gene editing it, in specific cases, it might be one of our most useful routes. I mean, if you look at something like, um, you know, banana production, you know, really bad uh, infection, this kind of you know, fungus infection that's been racing around the world. It's in, it's in Latin America, which is by far the world's biggest banana uh, producing region or banana exporting region, um, at least. And really, the banana has no resistance to this. We already have GM ways of creating bananas that are resistant to, to this fungus, to this uh, TR4. So it seems to me that since the world is already in a situation where its export bananas are this monoculture of this one type of banana, which is vulnerable to this one virus, that, or not virus, it's one fungus, that we are unlucky enough to, to have in pretty much you know, a very large percentage of the world's uh, banana plantations, that if you want to stick with this crop, then probably you do have to look to solutions like GM or like gene editing, because you know, you know it can really kind of give us the ability to to overcome this. So I think that I think sometimes you know GM is responding to this situation of monoculture where well if we've grown the same crop ev- crop everywhere, if those situations change, well we need to either grow a different crop or we need to find a way to keep that crop but make it resistant to. Uh, you know, whatever situations it's in. So I think it's important to use it as a, you know, a powerful tool. But yeah, be you know, pick and choose the places. But I do think it's a really powerful technology that we shouldn't throw out for, you know, on on some kind of principle basis, right? It's about picking the right solution to the right problem. And it's interesting that some of the basic work that's done on uh, GM bananas bananas is done in Uganda, so it, it, it's it's not a question where this is always done in high high income countries. Uh, just a final point on this topic, Amanda. It, it is a sort of unfortunate byproduct of all the concentration on regulating GM that now the only companies that can afford to go through all the regulatory hurdles are the big big inter, uh, multinationals. So we've set up a system which suppresses innovation in the smaller companies. So when people say GM is just the creature of the uh, multinationals, they're right to a certain extent, but that's because we've set it up to be like that rather than it need necessarily be. Yeah, and that's a huge loss because actually some of the real technology and innovation and um, exciting developments around new ways of looking at food, food production, new co- um, new crops are actually coming out from very small, you know, innovative startups, aren't they? I mean, I'm probably probably coming out of Oxford. They're certainly coming out of places like Imperial, where you've got, you know, and 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 Rothamsted, where you've got people looking at alternative ways of producing crops to feed people using using tech without necessarily being supported by those big global, um, you know, multi billion pound organisations. I wonder if I should just something that's been sort of troubling me as we've been talking is we've kind of implied that of that you know agriculture is sort of okay in the UK, but we hear constantly about how our biodiversity loss and we've depleted the quality of our land and you know we've got huge amounts of runoff and you know do you feel that our system here in the UK is is doing what it needs to do or is there more we should be doing to improve the way that 
crops and food production happens. You know, just being a bit parochial about it for a moment. I am yes. concerned about bananas, but I don't like bananas. So they're less, they, it worries me less. It worries me more about what's happening on my doorstep <laughs> in terms of agricultural production. So um, I think it's a really interesting time for the UK at the moment. Um, whether you're a Remainer or a Brexiteer, we're out of the European community now. We are out of the common agricultural policy and we have an, an opportunity to fashion a better UK landscape. Um, the government has made all sorts of interesting commitments to um, what we should do with the UK landscape uh, involving biodiversity, involving net zero, involving rural uh, uh, rural landscapes and rural economies. Um, and I hope they all add up. Um, it's, I do worry a little bit that we're committing the same land to multiple causes. Um, the future I would like to see in the UK is that we still do continue to uh, contribute to world food production as we should as a, as a high income country. So I would like to see our farming increasing and becoming more sustainable. So uh, I think that, that there's a term sustainable intensification, which is contested quite a bit. And some people, especially animal welfare people just don't like it as a term. But I think if you ignore the words and just look at what it means, continuing to produce more, increasing uh, yield, but with a lower impact on the environment is really important. I think there are whole swathes of the country which are not um, viable purely for farming without some form of subsidy. In the past, under the CAP, we've done single farm payments, essentially giving farmers a subsidy that purely comes on, uh, purely is related to uh, area. The government have um, set out a plan to transfer this to public money for public good. And that public good would be biodiversity, carbon storage, flood protection, all sorts of things like that. Now, it's a huge challenge to actually implement that and implement it fairly and to do a just transition. And I think that if we were to succeed in that, that would provide livelihoods for many in the rural economy, would produce food, perhaps not as much food as, some of, uh, as in some of the most high productive areas, but would produce a multiple of other valuable outputs for society. And then finally, we will need some land, some already out of agriculture, perhaps some land coming out of agriculture that has other functions, making our biodiversity pledges, meeting our um, negative emissions um, ambitions. We will need to suck some carbon out of the, out of the atmosphere. So I think it is exciting. Um, I think we have the flexibility to do that. Um, I worry that we don't have a national plan or national plans, I should say, because this is a competence for the devolved administration. And if asked to ask the government to do something in the short term, it would be to do the equivalent of what the Bank of England gives with forward guidance. So we do need to have some idea about how public money for public good is going to be implemented over the next decade or two decades so that farmers and other land managers can make decisions and how the nascent field of green financing can come behind and support it.
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we've had farmers on the programme recently who've who've been wrestling with this as they transition from CAP payments to, to you know, environmental um, set-aside payments and things. And, you know, very difficult if you've been doing that already for many years to then re-qualify for another set of payments that, that that you can't get. So, so, so it's a hugely complex picture. But Matt, have you, what are some of the things that, you, I mean, that was a very, very clear kind of agenda that Charles has just set out there for us, really. Um, you know, a calling on government to have some forward planning. I think, gosh, we would love that. Um, Matt, what would what would you be calling on from? And some of the things that you mentioned in your book about different approaches and, you know, cultivating meat labs and things. What what would be your kind of agenda points around around food and and the way that we interact with our land and make it more sustainable? Yeah, I think that point about how we produce protein is really, really important. When we're talking about the environmental impact of food, a really huge chunk of that comes from livestock. And the biggest proportion of that comes specifically from uh, beef and and dairy cows and, you know, um, sheep. So I think that I would love to see much more research into alternative forms of protein, whether that's you know, stuff like the Impossible Burger and stuff like Beyond Meat uh, or, you know, certain forms of fungi or uh, even thinking about slightly more out there ways of, you know, growing meat in the lab or cultivating meat, you know, uh, cells taken from animals and then growing them in bioreactors. I think that's really, really important because, yeah, when we talk about this emissions problem, the, the greatest chunk of that is thinking about beef in particular. So if we're going to carry on eating beef, then we need to be more innovative in how we produce alternatives or find ways to reduce the impact of of that meat. So I think I would really, really like to see more of that work. I think that so far, almost all of that work has been, uh, you know, done by private companies, uh, you know, people like, you know, Impossible, or if you look at the the cell-based meat sector, almost all of that funding has come privately, which is... Yeah, they've done they've done quite remarkable things with that private money. But I think if we want to have a more equitable system and we want to make sure that you know this meat is affordable and it works for everyone, we should be thinking about solving some of those more fundamental problems. Uh, you know, using public money, putting it into public institutions. So I think I'd really like to see that on you know, on the research front. And and the same applies to something like um, you know, fish farming. So fish is a pretty efficient form of protein if we're talking about carbon emissions, but we can actually reduce those emissions by quite a lot by trying to get the, you know, the meat part of fish feed out of fish feed. So at the moment, that's usually sourced from wild caught fish. But actually, we know that you can either switch that out for uh, vegetable matter in some cases, or maybe you can grow insects and things like that. And again, I think that it'd be great to see more funding channeled into some of these fundamental problems. Um, You know, and if you think, you know, we've been doing this for decades and decades, right? If you look at um, you know some of the you know, innovations in in crop science that allowed us to um, you know inc- increase these yields we have today. A lot of that came from private money. A lot of that came from you know public funding. And that actually we're facing similar scale problems. But I'm a bit worried that we're not channeling money into the right areas at the moment to achieve those breakthroughs. Mm. So uh, I disagree slightly with Matt on this, and rather unusually, coming from a research university. Uh, I'm going to say that uh, I'm not sure the division between the public-private sector in this particular area is too bad. So, Matt, if you look, you mentioned Impossible Burgers and some of the other things that are coming through. If you look at the basic science upon which they are based, then that has largely come from the publicly funded 
research. And I, I, I think at the moment, the, the, the sort of research and development ecosystem where ideas are taking up is working uh, quite well. Um, I think some of the issues might be uh, bridging the, the, the cliche term is the value of death. So getting work out of the publicly funded labs into the small companies. I think a broader point you make is um, about the variety of different uh, technologies that are available at the moment. There are a a great variety of technologies, including many of the plant-based protein technologies, which are fit for for purpose at the moment. Um, It does strike me that this is an area where um, a brave government would think about having a carbon tax on protein, because that would then really push, I think, the right behaviour in the market and in the private sector. Now, earlier in the discussion, I said that I worried about anything that made food more expensive because it's regressive and it's fine for a well-paid professor to say what happens if you're on universal uh, uh, credit or something like, uh, like that. But one of the exciting things, I think, with the meat substitutes is that we are getting and soon will have, I think, substitutes for beef that we have at the moment for patties and sausages, we may in the future for textured uh, meat, um, which would not attract those, those, um, those taxes. So I think that might be one way of pushing better behaviour amongst us all without penalising the poorest in society. I think I'd support a, a, a protein tax. That certainly sounds sensible to me because, you know, as long as it doesn't and, and apply it to possible. meat, and sorry, Amanda, it could be cost neutral as well. It could be cost neutral. Can, can we make it animal protein only, though? We're not going to put it on, on bean protein, are we? And the other no, sources. I think you should definitely put it on, on all proteins, but you all make proteins. it cost neutral. And if it's sort of cost neutral, then, or at least you're not making money, then the good animal, uh, the good plant proteins will attract essentially zero tax. But if I am, <laughs> if I invent a way of doing, of growing cow peas in a way that has, huge carbon emissions, I should be taxed. <laughs> I mean, it's sadly, you'd have to draw this to a close, but this is an absolutely fascinating conversation and we could go on all day, I think. Um, um, I, I'm, I'm duty-bound to ask you, I mean, Charles has already set out quite a powerful agenda for, for government and policymakers, but I'm duty-bound to ask you if you had a call for, 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 for the, those who are attending COP in Glasgow, what would it be? What are your, what do you think in terms of our food and sustainability and, and the environment would be your kind of one or two, you know, key asks of that group of policymakers and leaders. Matt, can I ask you first and then I'll revert to Charles? Oh, that's such a tough question. That's, yeah, I mean, I think I would go to this point and this, this touches a little bit on what Charles was speaking about earlier if you're talking about the, you know, the, the situation with agriculture in the UK, that we make sure that we are not exporting the problems of our food system to other countries. If you look at something like biodiversity loss, you know, the brunt of that is born in in other parts of the world. Obviously, there's bad biodiversity loss in the UK, but typically in, in the developed world, biodiversity loss has happened at a slower rate over the last few decades than in other parts of the world. It's happening much more quickly. So I think, you know, part of this key message is trying to get countries like, you know, Brazil, you know, on board and finding ways to encourage them to, you know, cut down, uh, you know, land use change to, you know, preserve parts of the, you know, the rainforest and making sure that we're not 
part of a food system that implicitly encourages this. So I think we need to be really careful not to, as we've done with carbon in the past, export some of the bad parts of our food system and say, well, that's not our problem because that land use change happens somewhere else in the world. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm maybe it's down to Charles to suggest the mechanic for this, but I'm just really wary that we create the food system we want, but we only create it in one country and we don't look at the other parts of that chain. Yeah, excellent point. Charles, did you have a call out? Or? Three quick things. So if you look at the history of COP processes uh, all the way back to Kyoto and things, then initially food and agriculture uh, was not really included. And over the years, it's become more included. Land use change has always been in there. So uh, bring in food into thinking about uh, COP, even if it's a different uh, decision, difficult decision. Um, let me reinforce what Matt said about we need to think about um, exporting emissions within food. Um, actually, one of the most interesting things I think has happened in the last six months has been the European community being um, talking about putting a decent price on carbon and having border uh, adjustments at, at the border. It may be that almost parallel to COP, uh, a coalition of the willing coming up, up through uh, up, prompted by what the European community have done, may make a, a real difference. We have to think about that within food. And then finally, uh, going back to what we said, that some of the poorest people on earth are going to be those whose food supply is hit first by climate change. And we have to think about them. There are some exciting things we can do. And just to be parochial about an interest in Oxford, better weather forecasts. So you can get out there and you can say, something horrible is going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And you actually um, get out there ahead of it, provide food, provide cash in advance. So there are things that can be done, things that can, well, Matt, you'll know this as uh, working for Wired, things that can be done uh, with apps and things. There are exciting things that can be, uh, can be done out there. So it's not all a gloomy picture. Thank you both so much. I mean, absolutely fascinating discussion. And as I say, I'm, I'm really loath to draw it to a close, but I should for the sake of our listeners. But I, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you. Um, enormous thanks to you, Charles, for joining us today. Thank you. Enjoyed it. And, and to you, Matt, and for, for your book that you produced for Wired. So thank you, Matt. Thank you. Uh, thanks, too, to our producer, Jim, and the researcher, Beth, um, and as always, to our sponsors, Evershed Sutherland. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Why not subscribe via your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode? Or visit the website, theplanetpod.com, where you can check out previous episodes and catch up on our new series, Planet Pod Does COP26, with a whole range of new podcasts. If you get a moment, please rate the show and do follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.